Cinema Sit Down, Episode 227, a review of Who's That Knocking at My Door, hosted by Ryan Bull, Richard Lusk, and Tony Christ, February 1st, 2020. The following podcast has been approved for all audiences by Flying Bull Productions. best part of any film is the sit-down afterwards. Richard Lofsk and Ryan Bull bring you Cinema Sit-Down. Welcome to Cinema Sit-Down. We are in the year 2020 and we're happy to join you. My name is Ryan Bull. I'm one of three hosts. Richard Lusk, how are you, sir? What up, you? And then we've got Tony Christ. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you guys doing? Doing all right. We decided to start off this year not looking at current films, but in previous shows we talked a little bit about Martin Scorsese, and he's a director that we hadn't really been covering a whole lot, and uh, we've kind of picked it up here at the uh, start of 2020. So in the next three episodes, we're going to be reviewing uh, three of Scorsese's films, arguably two of his most famous, as well as one that he's not really that well known for. So uh, we're actually going to start off today with his very first feature film, which, uh, Lusk, I believe you were the one who wanted to do this one. Uh, Do you want to tell us about uh, Who's That Knocking at My Door? Uh, Yeah, sure, man. Uh, I wanted to pick this because uh, I wanted to look over my, or have a retrospective view of Martin Scorsese. I wasn't familiar with all of his uh, work, and so I figured I'd start right at the beginning uh, with this movie, which is semi-autobiographical movie about kind of hanging out in uh, New York City in the year 19... It was made in 1967 through... Uh, I, I think it actually took several years for them to get it out because it was a, an independent movie, so probably it's set in the I don't know, early 60s looking back at his mm-hmm. at his childhood a little bit um stars a young harvey keitel as jr uh, i guess he's the stand-in for the uh martin scorsese himself and uh he has a love interest known as uh, the actress is xena uh, bethune whom i've never heard of she was in some television around that time and i don't know if she made another feature film after this she maybe, did not have much of a of film career. Uh, she was much better known as a dancer, and she did oh. a lot in the world of dance, but very little in film. I think she kind of just did this film as a favor to Martin Scorsese. Oh, that's interesting. Um, it kind of plays like not a, the type. Kind of plays like a uh, like a college thesis video or something. Well, it's not really the type of movie that he's known for. Um, although it does have some of the crime elements and some of the sort of i don't know historical view of uh catholic new york city youth i guess uh and the way that they hang out <laughs> right it would see so the it, there's some thing too like you know what is, they'd be second generation if their parents were immigrated over right uh so i mean there some of that criminal crime element is in there you know the sort of gang i guess the uh title character or not the title character but the lead character jr is uh sort of in a 
it's sort of a loosely suggested criminal gang. It's not really clear what it is that they're into. Mm-hmm. Um, they take a journey outside of the city at one point. Um, you know, they're really misplaced out there. So um, it's not really clear where he gets his money. They hang out at a social club for the most part. That's kind of where the movie opens. And then through a series of flashbacks, we get to we begin to understand how this relationship that he tried to develop with a what he thinks you know who he considers to be a, a good girl uh played by xena there turns out to be not exactly what he's expecting um for whatever reason so there's an interesting take on relationships and how people um put certain images on on their prospective love interests and maybe put them up on a pedestal that for whatever reason they can easily fall off of and then they have to deal with the ramifications of those of those actions um i think it's you know in in the light of the me too movement and current woke social culture especially given the fact that Scorsese is accused of not having very highly developed or well-developed female characters. I think it's uh, telling to look back and see a female character in this movie that has some positive aspects, you know, she's a fully developed, maybe not completely fully developed. She doesn't um, have a name. Wait a minute. She's credited as the girl. Yeah. Well, but <laughs> right. we do know more about her background well, than anybody else's. I mean, you, you, we can make assumptions on JR's background being that, you know, I don't know if he's living at home, but he, or he stay, you know, he visits home quite frequently. And I think you made that point too about it being kind of autobiographical because there is that where, you know, in the 60s or 70s where this takes place is it was a turning point for people. Like he's from the old culture of the strong, you know, Italian Catholic, but. You know, you have this revolution going on, you know, cultural revolution going on in the 60s and 70s. Like, does he want to be a part of that? Does he want to be part of the old, you know, his old parents type thing? Oh, yeah. No, I I definitely, I I saw that. But pretty quickly into this movie, about 20 minutes in, there's a weird scene between Harvey Keitel and his buddies. Yeah. And it started to remind me of another film that we talked a lot about on the podcast a little over a year ago. I think it was Scott Lasky's favorite film of that year. You have any idea what the film is? No, I'm drawing a blank. Call Me By Your Name. And once oh, I had oh, that okay. stuck in my head, huh. watching this whole film through that lens as like repressed homosexuality, <laughs> hmm. yeah. that's all I saw in this film. Like This guy, he's more in love with his buddies and he just wants to spend time with them. Not that there's oh, a right. take on it. I don't know. I think Lust really hit it on the head earlier when he talked about uh, that uh, Jr. is kind of on the uh, the outside or the perimeter, <coughs> or, sorry, the peripheral of uh, going criminal, where he's doing like petty stuff, where you can tell him and his friends as kids probably you know knocked over candy stores, maybe the local drugstore or something. But he's got that path where he, he can go with this girl. Or he and get married and have kids and be whatever, or he can go with his friends. And there is that scene when he finds out that um, his girl, uh, his his girlfriend had been uh, raped earlier, 
And, you know, he kind of takes that old weird approach. You know, again, this is what we talk about modern times. He kind of blames her for being raped, which is a different viewpoint mm-hmm. that you would have today if this movie was made. But he sees her as, like, untouchable, not pure. So he goes quickly back to his friends and they, you know, drunk in roughhouse in a bar. Oh, yeah. And that was a very weird scene because they kept trying to, like, stuff napkins in each other's mouths and things like that. Right. So, I, I, I don't know. There's definitely a lot with the Catholic guilt. And I know Catholicism's uh, a big factor in other Scorsese works. Probably uh, Last Temptation of Christ it, is the most well-known, either that or silence. Yeah. So, I mean, he's definitely playing with that. And then I, I think the thing that gets in the way of him trying to tell a story, and I'm glad he goes away from it, is, is that whole French New Wave cinema style. Uh, he does, He's, you know, obsessed with cross-cutting and fading and showing uh, a couple takes of the same scene, you know, over and over again. So there's, like, this unreliable narration I'm glad that Scorsese got away from that because to me it just ruined. Th- there was no story in those scenes. Everything well, you know, slowed some down the, so much. Some of the scenes were added at the request of the um, of the producers. They wanted to make it more salacious, like the whole uh, dream sequence or mm-hmm. flashback sequence where he's with a you know group of tainted women was something that they filmed a couple of years later and something he Scorsese really didn't want to do. Right. I think he conceded he, to it by having to be a fantasy or a possible fantasy where JR didn't actually do that. This is just all in his head. Uh, oh yeah. That was the most over top of all the scenes, but there's one where uh, Harvey Keitel's at an apartment with all of his buddies and they're drinking and then a couple of pistols get pulled out yeah, I don't know. And I, then you're like worried that something bad's going to happen, and then he cr- starts cross-cutting with images of John Wayne and famous westerns. Well, that's that's kind of how these guys thought of themselves as young gangsters, you know, the young gunslingers. I, I don't think that there was, but you know, I, I mean, I'm not saying that your perspective is completely wrong. I just, I just don't think that that was the main message with the pistols and the and the and the play playing around with his friends. I mean. All oh, young oh, kids wrestle with each other. Oh, you know, the, 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 the subtext of the film? Sure. No, I, I, I get that. But I just don't like that French New Wave style of storytelling. Yeah. It's funny because this one kind of reminds me uh, with uh, this Brian De Palma film with De Niro called The Wedding Party, which kind of has a, a similar idea where a bunch of friends are meeting together. And you have a lot of these weird cut scenes, too. So I wonder if there's something from, like, if you see early Brian De Palma, early Scorsese, early uh, Francis Ford Coppola, that you're going to have a lot of the stuff where, again, whether they came out of film school, this is what they were learning their senior year, it seems like. Mm-hmm. Right. They're working things out. They're trying yeah. to figure things out. It's, it's a rough draft more than anything else. But it's a pretty sophisticated piece of film work for, you know, a kid that's basically 20, what, 23, 25 right. years old. And I remember. The- I mean... When it came out, Ebert said it was one of the best films he'd seen, you know, that year. He saw it in, like, some friend, I guess, uh, maybe it played at cons or something like that. But he he gave it a lot of uh, high praise. And it might have, because of that, it might have uh, contributed somewhat to Scorsese's, you know, de- early developing career. Well, you can see this. Have you, ever, have you guys ever seen uh, Mean Streets? That's the next one he did with Harvey Keitel. 
uh, where it seems like it's, it's very much the same movie, except the violence gets amped up and they play a little bit more where cartel, he's not so much in the gang, but his, I think it's his brother or, his, or it's his girlfriend's brother is Rob De Niro's character, uh, gets really involved in the gang and so cartel cartels trying to move out of it and he's trying to leave but he keeps getting sucked back in because he's got like his cousins involved his brother's involved his whoever's involved he's got to keep getting right. them out so you can tell this is really was a template when i was watching this in the first few minutes of it and there's some scenes that look like shot for shot from you know for uh, mean streets that's kind of the main takeaway i got from this movie is that this guy is forced to be in a situation because of geography and you know who his friends are and where he grew up that this is the this is what he knows and this is how he's supposed to act and he's even though he wants something else he he has to be in this world and he has to treat women the way he he learned how to treat them he has to see him through the lens of uh you know, good girl versus broad, right. that sort of thing. And then I guess the scene where they go up into the mountains and his friend, uh, not not Sally Gaga, but the other guy, Joey, I guess. Mm-hmm. His friend uh, doesn't understand what they're doing up there. It's, he's completely lost in the mountains. And uh, JR seems to see that there's something else beyond the city life. And he never really fits in anywhere, you know? So, I mean, his church, he rejects the, his church kind of rejects him kind of at the end there, symbolically. His, he rejects his girl. He's always, like, not able to be with his friends and just be satisfied. He's just, you know, it's a big ball of angst. Yeah, I think a lot of so, people. Displacement. You know, have that crisis of conscience at some point when, you know, you're too old to hang out with your old friends, but you're not quite there with your new friends. And throw in, uh, you know, a big part of it, Scorsese, is, is the Catholic guilt that comes in there that, you know, his friends aren't following this path, so why should he? But, you know, you can tell that he really wants to please. You know, they don't, there's no direct scene like with him and his mom or him and his parents, but, you know, it kind of plays in the background that that's who he's trying to appeal, uh, appease or appeal to. How old is Harvey Keitel supposed to be in this film? At first, I thought he was supposed to be like 18, 19. I think he's probably early. And towards the end, I was thinking he's more like 24-ish or something. Yeah, I'd say he's in his 20s. Uh, but that could also be with how long he took to film it or release the movie or whatever, that he does age quite a bit from scene to scene. Uh, I, I looked it up, and uh, I think he was born in, well... I, I think he was 19 or 20 at the time they started in 1965. Mm-hmm. And then, like I said, it, it took him two or three years to get it finished. And so he looked a little bit older, but he's one of those guys that looks a lot older than yeah, he really he, is. He's, yeah. he's, he's looked, you know, 40 most of his life. And even like, <laughs> but, a, and even in the Irishman, uh, he, he's got a small part in there too, but he doesn't look like bad. His, his hair's all gray, for, which is different from, you know, from being black or like in Pulp Fiction where he's black and gray. Now he's just straight up gray. Yeah, I just, I, I wasn't sure how old he was supposed to be. And then you see how Spartan his apartment is. You know, the only thing that he has in there is a TV. So when he goes over to his girlfriend's apartment at the end of the movie, and it seems like she has a nice little place that feels much more adult and lived in. But he's like, oh, you, you don't have a TV, right? You, you don't have this album or that one, and it's like no, he just doesn't get reading. it. Where it's like 
you're at this nice place and, you know, she's making you coffee. She's offering you breakfast, you know. It's she's a functional books apartment. And stuff. She's an adult. Well, I do like him talking. That's where you talk about the John Wayne movies and Rio Bravo and The Searchers, where he's talking to her, like you said, about movies when she's like, I'm working, I've got a job. Like, I don't have time to just sit around and watch movies and stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. She's reading a French magazine, uh, a French movie magazine. That's how he, he just sees the movie part of it. He doesn't, I don't even realize thinks he re- I don't think he realizes that it's written in French right away. So, okay. but does she is she able to read the French? She said a little bit. I think she's yeah. French in real life, wasn't she? No, I don't know. I, I I don't know that. I did enjoy though how much there's this talk about movies and, you know, oh yeah, searchers a couple years ago that was great. And this sounds a lot like what you see more modern directors doing, uh Tarantino, Kevin Smith. Uh, Oh yeah, Kevin Smith, and you know this is what they're famous for. And I'd never really thought of Scorsese as having something to say about pop culture. Yeah, but yet this film, there, there's so much of that. <clears throat> well, I like that. Yeah, but and it's also of its time. It's contemporary, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. So whereas Tar- Tarantino's looking back, um, Scorsese's just like living it. Well, I think like Pulp Fiction <laughs> takes like in the '90s and the referencing stuff in the '90s and even Reservoir Dogs. Uh, with like, um, you know, with the Madonna song in the beginning. So like you said, it's really cool. And like Kevin Smith too, where you're just like, oh, these guys live in the same universe that we live in. Like they have Star Wars exist in Kevin Smith's universe or Madonna exists in Quentin Tarantino's universe. You know, to, yeah, but you're right to have Scorsese because, you know, as we're prepping and watching different movies, I was looking at some of his other movies and thinking, wow, this is within, like, like The Departed only takes place within The Departed. Like, you don't see real people necessarily in there um, outside of it. I mean, they're based off real people, but, you know, they don't have, I don't think, like, Bill Clinton or whoever's supposed to be president or George W. Bush is in The Departed during that movie. Yeah, there are no topical jokes that are ever brought up that's going to date the film. There is a certain timeless quality, so even though you're watching Goodfellas and that's about a certain time period it's hard i think for a lot of people to know when that film was made it doesn't scream 1990 right hmm well i mean it makes reference to things that were happening that's true but they do change at the the time i mean at the time that the movie is taking place but it's hard to go oh this movie was clearly made in this era i Hmm. I think sometimes with uh, especially action movies and block you know those type of blockbuster films the CGI can kind of clue you in on when the film was made. Yeah, I think of that with like Air Force One when the plane crashes at the end in the water. It's like, wow, that's completely bad. Like that would be so much better today looking. Yeah, that late 90s, early 2000s CGI is just, whew, what an eyesore. All right, well, I want to go back to my point that I was <laughs> making er- earlier that you, that you completely shut down, which is... Uh, maybe even though she doesn't have a name <laughs> she's but still well drawn she is well i think so she is in the sense that she she has her own agency and she's she's not necessarily acting i mean um she's not there just to be uh you know ornamentation for jr and even though he keeps her separate from his friends i i'm thinking of someone like um Oh, the wife in Goodfellas, who seems to exist through him, through the character of Henry Hill. 
Right, she the, only narrates uh, after Henry establishes who she is. Right, and then she only has an existence as far as, you know, I guess we'll talk about Goodfellas a little bit later, but this girl, played by Xena, seems to um, react to him and sort of shut him down in a way that's, you know, I don't, I don't know, maybe ahead of his time a little bit. She seems to be a little bit more um, fully aware of herself, even though she doesn't have a name. So that's the point I wanted to make about that. Well, that, sure that could be a thing from Scorsese's plan on the fact that, you know, Harvey Cartel Jr. is looking for a wife. He's not looking for a particular person. It could be anybody could be his wife. So he just happens to find this girl first. So she's the girl. Well, it's got to be anyone that's pure. Well, yeah, but it'd be, but it's he's not particular at this point. He's got he's got to you know kind of weed through it a little bit. Yeah, but he's obsessed more with the idea of what a wife should be than an actual person. And I would think you know this film scores pretty low on the Bechtel test. Oh, sorry, how, how, right. girl, how, yeah. how many times a girl talks to other girls? Yeah. And even though at times she does uh, offer up her own viewpoint that's different from Harvey Keitel, up until the end of the movie, she just always acquiesces. Oh, okay, we disagree on this. Next topic. I don't know. I guess that's what I was left with was how it ended. And I guess, and then I went on and I watched um, Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, mm-hmm. uh, which I didn't know that Scorsese had done until I started looking into his early work. You know, I knew that 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 movie was out there. I just didn't know that it was a Scorsese movie, which I mean, technically it's not. If you look at it in terms of, you know, what he, the types of stories he usually tells. Yeah. No, I think, you know, if he would consider like Mean Street to be the first Scorsese movie. Yeah. I don't know. It's just weird looking at his filmography. There's such a wide variety of films. I'm surprised that he hasn't tackled, um, you know, the genres, outside of the gangsters relationship drama sort of thing. Yeah, I, I mean, I know he did the historical thing with gangs in New York and silence. Well, it's the age of innocence is considered to be like the non Scorsese Scorsese movie. Well, then you got Hugo. Yeah. Which, you know, is different too. Um, cause even <laughs> stuff like Alice doesn't live here anymore, you know, which, you know, the TV show Alice is based off of, you know, still has that relationship issue, you know, with Chris Kostakis right. and all that. So, uh, New York, New York's kind of interesting with him and De Niro and uh, Liza Minnelli because that's more, I think that was a, their passion project, De Niro and uh, Scorsese, because they were huge fans of like the big band era from the 30s and the 40s. Yeah, but unlike, I guess, some of the other early film school guys, he hasn't tackled science fiction any, and that just kind of surprised me, unless you consider Hugo science fiction. Right, which it would be like Roger Corman. It's more type fantasy. Stuff. So... I don't know, maybe he's just not real comfortable with a ton of CGI. I mean, he's used it sparingly in films like Avatar, or uh, Aviator, not Avatar. <laughs> and that, um, and, and even stuff like The Departed has a fair amount of CGI in it. Yeah, but that's just to tell us, so does The Irishman. But it's, I mean, that's just using the technology. Mm-hmm. But he was, uh, from what I've read about The Irishman, and then I mean, we can get back to our, uh, Who's Knocking at My Door, uh, with Irishman, he tried to really have as few effects on screen as possible. Like, he didn't want actors in a lot of makeup and dots and stuff. He didn't want to have to bring in another actor to act out stuff and then do face replacement later. 
he just wanted to film it like a normal movie and then turn it over to the special effects department and have them do their magic. Yeah, I think some of those choices were wrong. Yeah, yeah. But that's right. why we're not reviewing that movie today. <laughs> right, that was, right. Yeah, that was probably a big letdown for me for this year. With the fun, so get those ice all back together. Getting getting back to and I guess we can wrap things up with who's that knocking at my door. I'm just wondering if you guys think that Jr. will have a happy life. Yeah, see, I think so. But, I think he. I don't think he's going to go down the the drug way or like the criminal gang way. I think he's a guy who he'll probably be in the neighborhood still, uh, but he'll own like the shop or the business where the gangsters come to. But he's not going to be one of the criminal guys. Bull. I think he's going to go drink down in the village like he wanted to early on in the film with his buddies. Not, I thought he didn't want to go down there. No, I thought he was the one who wanted to go down to the village. And he's like, know. I'll even pay. Come on, guys, come with me. Let's go down to the village. And they're yeah. like, no, we he don't like kicked, the people who are down there. He got kicked out. I see him owning a, uh, uh, maybe a dry goods store in the mountains somewhere. <laughs> oh, he completely gives it up. Yeah, I think he completely gives it up and goes out and goes back to wherever the Copiaca Mountains or wherever they were like and yeah. opens up a little, you know, like a fish and bait shop. <laughs> and he, he doesn't he never finds the girl because he has his his standards are too high. Oh, I thought there's another reason why he never finds the girl. Yeah, I know you're obsessed with that point of view. I'm, t- I'm telling you, it's there. Like it's there. And I'm a big fan of when you watch a movie and you have some weird storyline set in your head. And everything fits into it. Yeah, yeah, and you just go, okay. It, it makes for an interesting film. Well, you do that um, with um, The Great Gatsby, right? That's how you read it? As, oh, as yeah, that, that's definitely there. It doesn't always have to be uh, homosexual stuff. Uh, you read Daisy, Daisy as having intellectual problems, right? That's Lusk. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, she, no, clearly clearly she's mentally challenged <laughs> uh there's a movie i don't think we've ever talked about on the podcast downsizing oh, yeah with matt damon and uh there's a guy i know that i i, I stopped seeing matt damon in the film and i just picture him <laughs> <laughs> and it makes the film so much better well i mean i was trying to tell my student i gave my uh for those of you that don't know i'm an english teacher and one of the assignments i gave over the christmas break was to read metamorphosis but i told them that they had to read it as if it were a comedy Oh, <laughs> that they have to look at the well that's kind of the way kafka looked at it for the most part and you have to try to get the humor out of it so if you read every line in there as being humorous then it becomes not as uh horrifying as some people make it out to be it's a completely different experience if you if you view it as a comedy, <laughs> as opposed to like a deep psychological horror show. That's well, a sign of a good story, anyway. Because I know a lot of Shakespeare plays to keep them fresh is that they'll set them in modern, you know, times. Like I remember seeing a version of Two Gentlemen from Verona, where the guys are from Verona, uh, Verona, New Jersey, instead of Verona, Italy. Yeah. I- what do you guys think about Harvey Keitel being one of Scorsese's like early go-to guys? Because you know his first probably seven or eight movies, Cartel's all uh, Cartel's all over all of them. Yeah, I think he works. He's a lens, you know. He's he's the he's the focal point of that movie in Mean Streets, and then, well, of course, in Taxi Driver, he blows him away. <laughs> yeah. Spoilers for Taxi Driver. Right. 
And like he's got a small part now, so doesn't live here anymore, and then very small in the Irishman. But you know, I like directors when they find somebody they work well with and they can just plug them in there when they need to. Well, if you watch Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore directly after this, like I did, then you can actually see JR being the character that he plays in Alice Doesn't Live oh, Here I Anymore. See. Yeah. That's an interesting I mean, but. Yeah, if if he goes down one route that we didn't mention, if he does become sort of a you know degenerate low life, then he can yeah, like he it, can be seen as that character. Yeah, like you said earlier about this being a you know, kind of biographical of a of a Scorsese. Uh, some interview years ago, Scorsese did talk about that with film. Was like he grew up in a neighborhood like that, and he really did have that path to choose from, of whether to go you know to school or to just hang out with his you know, uh, uh, criminal friends. So I can see this very, very much like a JR, like, you know, crisis of conscience. Yeah. I was just reading an article recently that said uh, a couple of his friends died at a very young age. Like he was 16 and he had two friends die of, I mean, not, I, I don't think they were necessarily criminals. I think one of them was an accident. One of them had some disease, but he, he became very aware of mortality at an early age. Yeah. And then I guess that, help to uh, shape or point him in a certain direction, maybe away from that criminal element that he was hanging out with. I don't know. Hmm. So would you recommend this movie? Bull? Uh, if you're a Scorsese completionist, yeah. there are five to 10 Scorsese films I would put up way ahead of this one, but it, it's not a bad film. If you're studying French new wave, if you're, looking at first films from, you know, famous directors. It's an interesting experiment, but this is in the bottom half of Scorsese's films. A, a lot of that, though, is so many of Scorsese's films are just really, really good. So, uh, Tony? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm with uh, Ryan on this. You can only go with this as if you want to see every single Scorsese movie. This is the only one <laughs> way to go see it. Um even like if you, if you like I said before if you like Mean Streets I would say watch this as kind of a prelude or a, you know like I know this is not a short film but like this would be a short film version of Mean Streets where he kind of got his act together for Mean Streets and then Lusk you made us watch it would you have other people go watch it I'd say if you had to choose between this or Hugo <laughs> You're better off watching this. Yeah, Hugo, I couldn't make my way through Hugo. Hugo was rough. And that, I didn't hate Hugo. I'm just putting that in sort of the middle of his, you know. That's the break point. Overall. Of yeah. The fulcrum of the teeter-totter. Huh. I think this weighs a little bit towards the positive side, towards the teeter side. I like so. it. Uh, the next Martin Scorsese film we're going to be covering is Goodfellas. Which I think for Tony, this is one of your like top five films of all time. Oh, it's, it's definitely my favorite. It's your favorite film of all time. Yes. All right. Oh wow. Fair enough. We'll be we'll, to discuss. We will uh, be covering that then. That'll be the second of three films of Scorsese that we're going to be doing uh, episodes on. So, uh, gentlemen, I thank you for joining us here at the podcasting table and with that i say there be dragons pox ad bonum everybody memento mori
what did you think of today's show? Did the guys get it right? Or are you wondering what movie they watched? Send in your review by tweeting at CSD Podcast, emailing cinemasitdown at gmail.com, or messaging us on facebook.com backslash cinemasitdown. Cinema Sit Down is a Flying Bull production.